I thought this morning that we'd continue on for one more Sunday on what we talked about last time. One of the things that I know that many of you are experiencing is the growing confusion of life. <laughs> I've said this before, but I think it needs to be emphasized that as we draw closer to God, as we begin to experience the simple and reliable peace of God, even for just seconds at a time, and then we return to the world, not return to the world in the sense that we have tasks to do, but return to it in the sense that we get scared of the peace of God and cast ourselves back into what was familiar, the world is more confusing. And so this is a phenomenon that many of you are beginning to experience, that as you continue your work, as you work hard, as you get up in the morning and set your purpose clearly in mind, and over and over again during the day, come back to it. As you stop and remember your Father and sit and let God's love surround you and bless you, the world becomes more confusing. And this is to be expected, and it will not be reversed. <laughs> we really do think that this world is some splendid piece of logic and of course it isn't. It is a madhouse. It is a playpen in which something has gone wrong. <laughs> but because we still love it, we still have hope for it, even though it has never once made you happy. Even though it's never once made you happy, you still hope that this new tack that you're now taking, whatever it may be, this new article that you've read, this seminar that you've attended, this, this is now suddenly going to make everything smooth out. <laughs> Your line at Albertsons will move the fastest. <laughs> <clears throat> And so it's very perplexing that it doesn't work out that way, especially if interspaced, inter interwoven, <laughs> interlaced <laughs> with all that um, are genuine attempts to settle into God's arms, to wrap God's peace around you. If there are those attempts and you do experience a little gentleness, a little peace, when you go back to the world, it is not as understandable as it was before you did that. The inherent confusion of the whole thing is more apparent and more apparent and more apparent. And I know many of you are beginning to experience that now and have been perhaps for some time. The mistake that we make, of course, is to dive even deeper back into our ego and drag out old, abandoned ways of trying to make it work. 
old defense mechanisms, old rules, things that we thought we were beyond. And so this is another phenomenon that many of you are beginning to experience. That as you begin to know the peace of God, you begin to not know yourself. And you do things that you didn't think you were capable of doing. Your behavior is erratic. Your emotions are erratic. And once again, this is to be expected because, you see, now the things that you believed in so long have no roots. They're just floating around out there. All these rules. Even the sins that we had so carefully categorized the rights and the wrongs that we knew everyone should live by have been badly shaken. We, we're not sure of this anymore. We're not sure what people should be doing. We've looked at our own mistakes and we've seen that sometimes, often, in fact, our greatest progress comes after our greatest mistake. And we have that heretical thought, are there any mistakes if my greatest progress often comes after my greatest mistake, in what sense was it a mistake? And this is very confusing. Because Hugh points out mistakes every Sunday. <laughs> your release from this, your salvation from this, is to understand it will not work. You will not be able to figure it out. You will not be able to salvage your ego and dress it up and patch it up. Your old self is slipping away and this is a cause of rejoicing, a cause of happiness. And so your peace, your stability, your reason, your logic, your reliability lies in turning more deeply to your Father, to Christ, to holding your best friend's hand more tightly, pausing more often, and talking to the one person who truly loves you. And then you will experience true stability, you will understand more deeply. You will feel cared for. But do not think that you will yet escape going back into the world for one more try and one more try and one more try. As long as we are in this world, we continue to make mistakes. We make the world real over and over again. We make it important, more important than anything else. And of course it hurts us. And the pain and the loneliness and the separation that we feel becomes even greater with each of those mistakes, even though they're f fewer and farther between. Now the reason that I bring up something like I did last Sunday, a program, which of course we've done ever since this church started, is so that there is some, some arsenal. There is some repertoire of uh, solving, problem-solving techniques at your disposal. 
And of course you already have some. But it's good to have to have a few that are simple and that work well so that when you are confused and you have turned back in the world, you can reach into your bag of tricks and you can come out with something good, something simple. We do not need a great number of tricks. This is the ego's logic, that we need a great number of dollar bills. We need a great number of friends. That We better be scared if we only have a few good friends. Our safety lies in a great number of friends. A great number of spiritual techniques. A tremendous array of concepts filling our mind. Shelves and shelves and shelves of books you can pull out. But actually, your life will run more smoothly if you cut back in every way that you can see to cut back. This is not a sacrifice. It's very important that no sense of sacrifice enter it. And do not underestimate your ego's pure joy with martyrdom. <laughs> it truly... Well, uh, I, uh, Jordan had his... Uh, we celebrated his, his birthday actually wasn't yesterday, but we celebrated yesterday. And we just invited uh, those people who had either babysat Jordan or had uh, children Jordan's age. That wasn't very many people. Uh, and we had, uh, so there were kids there and so forth. And I want to tell you uh, one of the modern children's jokes. Children, you know, tell jokes too. <laughs> Why did the elephant cross the road to get a nose job? <laughs> this is the modern joke. <laughs> the new generation. Uh, <laughs> and this is, of course, what we do. This is how we torture ourselves. If, if we don't have a problem, we'll make one up. And we will cross the road to get it solved. So just have a few problems. <laughs> you don't have to have so many. This is actually true. It's actually possible to sort of fence your ego in, to sort of give it its area of worry. This is actually true. And uh, Gail and I have been working on this recently to sort of pull in our area of worry. Now, you must let your ego worry about something. It is good, in fact, for it to have a few things to worry about. But you select them. And simply notice how many of the things that you worry about you actually don't have to worry about if you don't want to. This is somewhat shocking, this recognition, but uh, it's, a, it's a fact. You might even try making a list of worries. And then just go by and with a red pencil or something, check off the ones that you don't need. So Gail and I uh, went to... Uh, we were over... We went to an, an occasion recently. 
and occasions are becoming more difficult for Gail and and me as they are for many of you. Now, possibly you want, possibly you've wondered why this is true. Why is it more difficult to be around large number of large numbers of egos? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, the reason. Uh, well, you, you'll discover the reason if, for example, you were to do this little exercise we talked about yesterday, uh, uh, last Sunday, and writing down your thoughts. If you were to write down your thoughts, one of the things that you would notice very quickly is every time you're around just one other ego, your ego is a little stirred up. You have more thoughts. Your mind's harder, con- harder to, to control if you've been around just one other person for a little while. If you've been around two or three, it's even more difficult. If you've been in a room full of them, drinking and telling jokes and whatever else, for several hours, you may feel the effects of that for a day or two. However, it is sometimes more peaceful to be with one ego or two ego or even a room full of egos than it is to not go. Because not going has ramifications. Everything in the world has a ramification. There, when A Course in Miracles says you need do nothing, the ego comes in, as it does with every single statement of truth, and gives it some sort of behavioral interpretation. I need do nothing means I should sit in a chair. <laughs> I should not walk out my front door. And so forth. I need not buy groceries for tonight's dinner. Uh, whatever. I need not pay the bills. I need do nothing. But you see, you are doing something in the world. And so, of course, the statement is not addressing itself to that approach. It's not addressing itself to that approach one way or the other. So to physically do nothing has ramifications and you must look at them. So to go has ramifications and to not go has ramifications. And you must simply look and see which is the simplest, which has the least world in it. What will delay your progress least? What will make it easiest for you to remain peaceful, going or not going? And it's best not to know the answer to that question before you close your eyes. (laughs) It's best to not know, to remind yourself that you truly do not know the answer to any question. And so then you close your eyes. And in your peace, you will see something to do. You will see the simple thing to do. It will not be the perfect thing to do because it will have ramifications. So one of the ways that Gail and I have been trying to confine our ego concerns is to draw a circle around our family and say, well, if we must be concerned about something, let us be concerned about our children and about each other and about our house and our car and our pets. Just a little circle. Let's let it not go past that. So we, we were in an occasion, we went to an occasion recently, and it was a difficult occasion for me. And so I had a little mantra, because we know we talked about that last time, that after you go through these steps and you get to the point where you see what your thoughts do to you, 
then you may eventually want to take up something like a continuous mantra, a continuous prayer. Praying without ceasing is another way of saying it. St. John of the Cross wrote a beautiful little pamphlet. Our pamphlet was excerpted in which he talks about his prayer without ceasing. And it really doesn't matter what you call it, but something that you're putting in place of the thought, well, this has been very helpful to me. And so on, during the occasion, my mantra was, Gail is everything I want. And I just said that over and over. Gail is everything I want. So every time I thought I wanted to make a point, or I wanted to agree or disagree, so if you are trying not to disagree, the ego will say, well, then you should agree. Now, that's ridiculous. It's, it's the same to agree or disagree. What you want to do is listen. Listen and nod and smile and say, ah, ah. <laughs> that's a good one. Ah. But these occasions, <laughs> ah, mm-hmm, mm, mm, mm. That's... <laughs> <laughs> or, mm. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you say <laughs> uh, and um, it's surprising how little you have to talk it is really surprising people are so grateful that you've decided not to talk <laughs> we think there's going to be this big gap and that we will be noticed for not talking but just notice how how often you don't have to say anything, but you do listen because your brother, your sister stands before you. You honor their holiness. And so you fill the air with affection instead of words and opinions. But if you're like me, you must have a way of concentrating. And this little mantra was so good. So if I wanted to agree or if I wanted to disagree or if I were, my ego was shocked or if I thought... We should be eating now. Why aren't we eating yet? <laughs> Gail is everything I want. I don't want to eat yet. Gail is everything I want. Now, this could be a dangerous mantra in many people's uh, hands <laughs> because it could call to the desire for a special relationship. What is a special relationship? You and me against the world. It's an ego alliance in which we team up to hate. We team up to criticize. We team up on what we will what, what our what common disagreements we will share. So we can tut 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 together. <laughs> uh, that's what a special relationship is, and of course, it is what most relationships are. And the real strength of the relationship, the real pizzazz, the energy flow begins when you find an area that you can attack together. It doesn't matter whether it's political or religious or what someone did or the weather or Santa Fe. or It doesn't matter what it is. Or the latest research in flossing your teeth, which someone just gave me. Remember, we, we, these things change constantly. The latest research is toothpicks are better. And so that's something you can get to some get with someone about and you see. Attack dental floss. 
This is, a fa in fact, a good thing to attack. If you want to know what your ego should attack, this is an excellent thing to attack. Attack dental floss. Did you know that there are petroleum products on certain dental flosses? Petroleum products. You never hear anybody saying, petroleum's natural. <laughs> so that gave, that, that worked on two levels, that little mantra. You can just close your eyes and pray and come up with your own little words of truth that you want to say for a while. And that worked on two levels for me. It gave my ego its area of concern. Now I would be concerned about Gail and not everyone else there. Was Gail happy? Was, is there anything I could do for Gail? This is a concern. The ego likes to be concerned about that. We like to wring our hands over our spouse. And so that's a good thing to do, you see. So my ego had something to do, and then there was this other level. All that you have to do in order to awaken to God is to see your oneness with one other person. Now, we keep saying, this isn't the right one to see it with. <laughs> Got to get another one to see it with. And <laughs> I hate to tell you people... This has been going on for thousands of years. <laughs> but sooner or later you say, no, this will be the one. It can be that simple. And it does not have to be a spouse. It can be a child or your parent. It can be someone who's passed on that you still feel very close to. As a matter of fact, very often you will feel even closer to someone after they've passed on. Or it can be a, a good friend, or it can be a pet. It is actually possible to awaken by feeling your oneness with a pet. It doesn't matter where you see that you did not succeed in dividing everything. It doesn't matter where you see that. And so you just begin. And you practice it with everything, everything around you. And so, of course... That mantra is correct. There's chairs over here, and there's some right there, and there's some right here. Come on, sit down. <laughs> Gail is everything I want. Why? Because all I want is God. And Gail is my way home. If I had been at the occasion with John or with Jordan, I could say that same thing. Jordan is everything I want. And it would still be true. It's best to pick someone that you're not afraid of to do this. Because if you are afraid of the person, it is very difficult for them not to sense their advantage and give you things to do. And so you can be pulled around by someone you are afraid of. Now, you must understand your part in this. This is a dance that two people do. So I would not advise you using this mantra. Now, I'm not recommending this mantra. I'm just giving you as an example. With someone that you are afraid of, because then you will think that you have to do what their ego wants you to do, and you will think this is the definition of love and kindness. And, of course, it isn't. As a matter of fact, it is not a good thing at all. 
to do what someone's ego is asking you to do. It is not a kindness at all. It will delay both that person and you to do that. So we've talked about many, well, we haven't talked about many, but we've talked about several, a handful, a gaggle uh, of, uh, of, of tools, of techniques. One of them that we've mentioned a number of times at the dispensable church is breaking with the situation. If you don't know what to do, to leave the situation for a few seconds is extremely effective. Number one, because it tells your mind how important what you're doing is. And what you're doing is you're turning away from the world and you're turning to your father. You're turning to your peace. And you have just done something to show yourself how important you think it is. To stay in a situation that's confusing you is to do something that shows you how unimportant you think it is. And this is why I've mentioned diarrhea. Because you will break with the situation if you have diarrhea. And all that I have urged is that you make the peace of God just as important as diarrhea. Not any more so. So if you don't know that you should be saying this mantra about this person, or if you don't know anything, if you find yourself confused, it of course means that you have made something in the world important, more important than your purpose that you set this morning. But you must now, instead of wallowing in it and enlarging the problem by telling yourself over and over the mistake you're making, break, break with the situation. So that's one little technique. We've talked about setting a purpose in the morning. We've talked about letting go of the day. We've talked about other spiritual practices. There's no magic in them. There are just a few that we've talked about here. You could not do any of them and do another little set of them, and that would be fine. So we've talked about bracketing, pausing before you go into a store in your car, and then pausing when you get out. This is a wonderful spiritual practice. It really doesn't matter as long as you have a few things that you're going to work on today, a few things you're going to try, and not just look for better ones. And so I've brought up this one, writing down your thoughts. Why now, at the middle of the last year of the church, are we talking about this one? Because it's only at this point that there are now a large enough number of people here who can do this practice without torturing themselves, without thinking of, them, thinking of this as a, as a sacrifice. So the practice is extremely simple, but extraordinarily effective. It is so effective that you will stop doing it within a few hours or a few days. I promise, it's that effective. Your ego will give you a very good reason not to continue this. And you will buy it, and you'll find yourself not doing it. Because the ego thinks that either we must accept something or we must denounce it. Those are the only two choices we have. So, people think they either must attend the dispensable church 
or they must denounce the dispensable church if they decide not to attend it. They must either continue with their job or they must denounce their employer. They must either continue in their marriage or they must denounce their spouse. They must either go to the restaurant or rail against something that happened there. And those are the only two choices that your ego will give you. But they are insane choices. Because to choose to do not to do something, it is not necessary to find fault with it. You simply see, ah, I would rather do this other thing. Or, this doesn't seem to be quite the best thing for me to be doing now. I think I will try this instead. There need be no denouncement. But, since our ego thinks there has to be, notice that as you do, even a practice that's as simple as carrying a little pad around with you, as I do, a little broken off pencil, writing down my thoughts, even to do something so simple as that, your ego will say things like, well, for, here's what will happen. You will, first of all, become appalled at whatever the dimensions of whatever you're looking at. So let's say that you've decided to simply work on anger. And you're going to write down any thought that has to do with anger. Irritation, frustration, criticism, anything at all like that. Anything that's associated with it. And you start writing down any thought that's in any way associated with anger because you sense now that you wish to walk past anger. Incidentally, that is not an easy thing to walk past because it is the number one power in the world. So the angry person is the one who gets the attention. The angry person is the one who can manipulate best. And so there, it does seem to be a sacrifice to let go of anger. And you will see that it is dissolving at an alarming rate if you begin writing down every angry thought. But here's what will happen. You'll begin to see just what an angry person you are as you begin writing these things. And you will be quite shocked at how many angry, irritated, judgmental, frustrated thoughts you have. And your ego will say, this is not good for you. This is not good for you. This is filling you with anger. Now let's look at that. Can it hurt you to be aware of what you are already doing? How could that hurt you? Well, I'm focusing on it. I should be focusing on good things. Yes, and leave it to continue because it will continue. And so you would just like to be blissfully unaware of how many times you make yourself unhappy, of how many opportunities you had to love but instead you were irritated, of how many times you could have taken one step closer to home to be unaware of that. That's not focusing on it. That's being aware of it. 
There is nothing wrong with focusing on a mistake if you're the one who's making it. And if you have been making it for a very, very long time, and if you've reached the point of wanting to not make it any longer. We do this in everything. For learning a new sport, a new activity, we, of course, focus, become aware of our mistakes, else they do not go away. And so it will not hurt you. And yet many people who read A Course in Miracles will say, Oh, this is filling me with fear. It is not filling you with fear. It is showing you the fear that was already there. And if you'll look a little closer, you will see the truth of that statement. Very much like if you were to go to a therapist, as many of you have, a physical therapist, and become more conscious of a particular part of your body. And so now suddenly you're working on a particular body, part of your body. Maybe it's your neck, and you're doing little rolling exercises, do you see? Rolling exercises in the morning. And you're noticing how you tense your neck up. It will seem as if your neck is hurting more. But you know, in that case... You're simply becoming aware of the pain that was always there, do you see? Not that the exercise in itself couldn't bring some additional pain. I'm not saying that. But just to cast your vision on a particular area in your life will show you how you're hurting yourself. But do not allow your ego to convince you of such an insane notion that awareness could in any way harm you. It simply cannot. Now, as I've said before, this technique can be used for anything, writing your thoughts down. It can be used... Well, mornings are a bad time. Mornings and evenings are a bad time for people because we think of them as transitional periods. And we do things that are not essential. So you get up in the morning and you've got these things to do and there's usually some deadline. You've got to be at work by a certain time. It can be even more difficult with people who have children, but it can, it can be very difficult for people who do not have children. Mornings. What is it that makes mornings difficult? Well, let's say you decide you want to figure that out. Why do you have such a hard time in the morning And perhaps, why do you have such a hard time in the evening? And it begins to dawn on you that possibly it's because you set goals. You're constantly setting little goals, little expectations about how things should go. And of course, they never go that way. And so you decide to write down these little expectations, how things must go. And you begin noticing that your mind decides how things must go from the time you first awaken. One after the other after the other. How something must go. Little teeny thoughts come in. How breakfast must go. How things must go in the bathroom. No one must be in the bathroom because you have arisen. (laughs) And someone's in the bathroom. And so you start writing this down and this makes you unhappy. To have the least discontent about the situation you are in brings the whole world on top of you. 
You cannot know the presence of God if you are the least bit discontent with the situation. And you will be if you have a goal, if you have an expectation, if you're trying to get to something, if you're trying to rush through something, if you have a time limit, if you think something must go so quickly, and it's not going that quickly, then you are a little discontent and you are losing your peace. I don't care how long you meditated that morning, it's now going out the window, the door, the trap door, up the chimney, wherever it goes. And so you want to know, what, how, what do I do? What do I do? Why do I lose my, lose my peace so quickly after meditating? Here I have been picked up in the arms of God, and I feel as if I'm being carried through this day, and suddenly he drops me. <laughs> how did that happen? And so you write, start writing down the goals, do you see? It can be used for that. Perhaps you'll discover other things, like starting unnecessary projects in the morning and just before you go to bed. Like you've only got so many things to do. You might try writing down. What essential things do you have to do before you have to leave for the office or work or the child has to be taken to school or whatever the thing may be? Notice how many suggestions your ego will make that you add to the list. Every single morning you are doing things that you do not need to be doing at that time. And there's no surprise why you're rushed behind time. Because suddenly, the pinto beans must be sorted through and the floaters must be discarded. <laughs> suddenly, this is very important. He goes, it's got to be done. But it doesn't have to be done then. And you notice this in writing it down, you see. The thing that I'm using it for right now, as I told you before, is staying in the present. So any thought that takes me out of the present, I write down. Staying in the present is an extremely difficult concept. It is so easy to say and talk about, but very few people have any understanding of it whatsoever. They think it has something to do with not planning. So that often I... If you'll listen on my tapes, you'll notice that very often I talk about the present. I will then make the statement immediately afterwards. We haven't got much time left. And invariably someone will say, remind me that I'm making a mistake. Because this is in fact the way people interpret staying in the present. That it has something to do with not planning. But everything that you do has to do with the future in the world. It's either correcting something from the past that's going to go into the future if you don't correct it, or it has something to do with what you're thinking about in the future. Staying in the present, therefore, does not mean that you don't do things that pertain to the future, because if you'll look closely, you cannot do anything that doesn't pertain. Why do you pick up your house? Why do you clean your house if it's not for the future? Why do you wash the dishes if it's not for the future? Why do you brush your teeth if it's not for the future? If you had heard a booming voice, we're coming to get you at 3.30, you might skip brushing your teeth. (laughs) 
And so this is an utterly ridiculous concept. To stay in the present means that you don't make reservations or you don't uh, take out insurance or you don't buckle your seatbelt or you don't do anything else that suddenly you see relates to the future. Everything that you do in the world relates to the future. Staying in the present means that your mind is in the present while it takes care of the future. Now that is a difficult thing to do because our mind is usually in fantasy, in ramifications, in thoughts about things, or it's in the past, reviewing our mistakes, cataloging them, ranking our position, you see. So staying in the present means that your mind hasn't gone off to the future. Now you are in another time, another place. How many seconds during the day are you not in another place? Six? Fourteen? No, that's an exaggeration. I would say possibly two or three full seconds your mind is in the present. But do you wish it to be that way forever and forever and forever? Do you always want to be lost in this world, churning about something over and over again? So many people say, how can I experience God? God is in the present. That's where you find him. How are you going to find him if you don't begin to learn how to stay in the present? So concentrate on it. What does that mean? Well, it just means you try. You try to concentrate on the present. Try to bring your thought back gently, not forcefully, not critically, not with great reprimands to yourself, but very gently bring it back. I'm driving this car. Let me drive it with the mind of a child. I'm eating this food. Let me eat it as if I've never eaten this food before. Because you haven't, if you look closely. You've never had okra fixed quite this way. The brown rice was not boiled the exact number of seconds that it was before. Or the basmati white. As long as it's not Uncle Ben's, it's okay to eat it. I'm going to go through the program one more time. And I remind you again that this church is a teaching operation. That's how it started. We had groups. First a group of parents who'd had children die. Then we added other people who had had other people die, spouse and so forth. Then we had a, another group for rape victims and battered women and people who are suicidal and alcoholics and so forth. And then it became obvious that something deeper was needed. And so a few of the people who were in those groups went out and found a place and we had our first meeting, first church meeting, because we never had a meeting. We started the church without a meeting. <laughs> See, it's just amazing what you don't have to do. <laughs> <clears throat> Uh, 
And so this is a teaching operation, a teaching operation. It's not a ritual operation. It's a teaching operation. Many of you are teachers, many of you are counselors, and you already know that the hardest job you have when you counsel anyone is motivating them. This is the single hardest thing. You will tell them something to do, and they will not do it. Or they will do it for just a little teeny, teeny, teeny bit, just long enough to give you a good reason as to why they're not going to do it. And so then you try to think of something else and something else and something else. We are willing to give up everything except our misery. So do not underestimate your ego's unwillingness to do this little practice. And yet, ask yourself, have I been ordered to do this? Does Hugh check up on me? Will anyone know? Why do I wish to do it? Because you are growing tired of being unhappy, being caught up in all this confusion day after day. You're tired of friends that aren't friends the next day. Of people who are going to marry you one day and the next week they won't talk to you. Of longing to be close to your parents and still one more time you're not close to your parents. Longing to feel a oneness with your child and there's one more little petty disagreement over something. And you don't want this anymore. And so see that it's all up to you You can take as long as you want to awaken. You can, indeed, take as long as you want. There is no time limit on this. But don't you want to now? And so, for not everyone here, but for many, many people, this is another good idea. To simply write down your thoughts about something. Now, here's the little context that I gave it in. Because it's good to see a reason for writing down thoughts. So this is what I suggested that you do. I suggested that you begin for one week, for only five minutes a day, just sitting and watching your thoughts, doing nothing more than that. Like you would watch the clouds go by. Like you would watch ants make an anthill. And isn't it interesting what that ant is carrying into the anthill? Why do they want legs of cricket? You wonder, you see, as you watch the ant in there. But you don't judge it, do you? You don't condemn the ant. You don't say, boo! (laughs) Don't you realize that crickets are children of God too? You don't scream this at the ant. You just say, hmm, big stone, cricket leg, piece of leaf so forth. It's just interesting. And this is the way you look at your thoughts. You'll find things far more shocking than a cricket leg. (laughs) But don't judge it. Just say, hmm, aha, the same thing you do at parties. Mm -hmm." (laughs) So for five minutes a day for one week. Now, number two, ten minutes a day. I know this is a drastic increase. Ten minutes a day. Ten minutes a day for two weeks. 
One of the things you'll learn when you counsel is you cannot suggest anything for more than a month. I mean, if you want to be sure that they will not do it, never go over a month. What there is about the ego, it will accept one week, two weeks, three weeks, and possibly a month. But if you go over a month, you are in. That's eliminate your effectiveness. So if you don't want them to do it, say, do it for three months. For two weeks. Two weeks. You said, watch your thoughts. But this time you categorize them. So you have a little piece of paper and you've got little headings. Now I suggested some headings, but you can have other headings. Goals, for example, might be a heading. But last time I suggested judgment attack as one goal. So criticisms. I suggested worries. I suggested fears. Point out the difference between the ego looks at a fear and a worry. Thinks of the fear as a fact, a sort of a settled condition that you can't do anything about. Whereas a worry is something that you think you can do about. So it's, for example, it's more difficult to recognize a fear than it is a worry. The fear seems quieter somehow. So you'll begin to see these levels of thought as you do this. And the ones that really affect you are on the next level down. But you'll begin to see them, you see. Why do you lose your peace? That's all you're trying to find out. Almost everyone here has known God for a second or two. And then you lost it. Wouldn't you like to know how that happens? Wouldn't you like to feel God's arms around you forever and forever and forever? Then see what you do to turn away, to turn your back. Because God does not turn his back on you. And I suggested past and future. So I suggested five categories. You could just have three. If you want to put in good categories, so-called, you could do that. But make sure they are good. The ego thinks excitement is good. However, as you begin watching your thoughts, you will find that your real thoughts are mixed in with them. And you will actually discover genuine impulses of, of gentleness and kindness. Not I ought to, not duty stuff, not guilt stuff. I ought to do this, I ought to go see so and so. That's not a gentle thought. You will feel true gentleness. It's a, it's a song. There's no frustration about it. It has no behavior attached to it. It's just a desire to be gentle, to be kind, to be a good friend. The ego, of course, immediately comes in and tells you how to be a good friend. Pick up the tab. But that's not being kind to the bank, is it? Because they've got to send out the statement that you've overdrawn your account one more time, so forth. But you will feel these your real thoughts, you'll see them mixed in there. As you watch your thoughts and become more aware of your thoughts, you will see that your mind is the only thing that exists and that God's right there in it and that you have genuine feelings of, of peace and love, even love, even unconditional love and happiness. These little songs that you can't hear in the beginning. Little songs. And you'll begin to hear them, you see. So if you wish a category like that, fine. But make sure it's not duty things. And then the third step, after you've finished those three weeks, 
was that you then have your little notebook and you begin working on something, such as your idols. What are the things that you love? What are the things you seek? And maybe you've already identified one or two. Everybody's thought turns over and over and over to one or two subjects, three or four, but one major one. Over and over and over, you're thinking about how you look. Over and over and over again, you're thinking about your health. Over and over again, you're worrying about your child. This is what you spend most of your time doing. Over and over again, you're thinking about how you're going to get ahead in your business. Or perhaps it's money. Or perhaps it's anything. You'll be surprised. Right, being right. Over and over again. You're having little scenes about where you were right and someone else was wrong are those very few occasions in which you were actually wrong and someone else was right. But notice, there's an idol here. Being right is an idol. It's a love. It's a passion. And this is the track that our life runs on. And so perhaps you, you take one of these things and you, and you begin writing down the thoughts about it, you see. Then, as a fourth step, I suggested that you after you've been doing this with the book for a while, a little notebook for a while, that you have, have, add a little meditation, an, an extra meditation, one in which you might just start with, say, five minutes and then increase it as you feel willing to increase it. And during the meditation, you concentrate just on having a still mind so that you begin to understand what emptiness is like. You, you see, we think stillness is a negative. It is an absence. Stillness is God. So when you practice stillness, you are beginning to practice the presence. And so you practice being completely empty. And I suggested that as you do that, you say a mantra so that you have something in place of the thoughts. You decide on it and you say it over and over. And then if you wish for a moment to stop saying it and just experience the silence, there's no rules about this. This is just a suggestion. But a period of, say, five minutes in which you practice emptiness and see that you have nothing to fear from it. We think if we give up all this chaos, there will be nothing. If you give up all this chaos, there will be home. That's what there will be. Home. You've never left it. But at the moment, you don't even see it, although it surrounds you, you see. And then the last thing I suggested was that after you've been doing this for a long time, and you really see the point of it, and you've actually gotten to the point of realizing that you don't want to think anymore. But you have to see that. This is a huge war you undertake unless you've really seen that you cannot think any thought that does not make you unhappy. Once you have seen that, then you say, I don't want to think anymore. And so I will begin working on that. And then you have your mantra, and you say it forever. And you change it, of course, from time to time, or adapt it to a situation. Now, what I would like to end by doing is giving you such a mantra one we've mentioned here before, and perhaps you can memorize it. This may be of help, and it may not. But it's what I've referred to in the past as the Mrs. Fulton prayer. 
So Mrs. Fulton was the Christian science practitioner that I used to go to as a very young boy. And she wouldn't discuss things with me. I was disgusted with Mrs. Fulton. She wouldn't discuss metaphysics and theological points and truth and so forth. She would just heal me of my question. <laughs> it's insulting. I'd go with go there with this burning question. Mrs. Fulton would close her eyes and I'd be healed of it. And she also uh, healed physically. So I told you about uh, on twice she healed me of a broken leg. And it was one, it was one of those bizarre coincidences. Once it was it was because I'd been kicked by a horse. This happens a lot in Texas. And uh, the other time was because I fell down on a construction job. That has, happens a lot in Texas, too. Uh, and uh, both cases, an x-ray was taken. Mrs. Fulton was called. Twenty minutes later, although the doctors were different, another x-ray was taken. There was no sign of a break. I'd never met a Christian science practitioner or any other healer who could heal with the ease that Mrs. Fulton could heal. She just closed her eyes and you were healed. There was no talking, there was nothing, except this little prayer. And so she would close her eyes and I would hear her saying this little prayer. Sometimes it was loud enough for me to pick it up. Sometimes it was partly under her breath. But one thing I know now is Mrs. Mrs. Fulton was not trying to heal me of a broken leg or anything else. She was just immersed totally in God. So I will say a phrase of it, and you can repeat after me. I am one with thee. O thou infinite one, I am where thou art. I am what thou art. I am because thou art. So let me go through that one more time. You can say it again after me one more time. I am one with thee. O thou infinite one. I am where thou art. I am what thou art. I am because thou art. Okay, let's say it continuously. I am one with thee, O thou infinite one. I am where thou art. I am what thou art. I am because thou art. Now take as much of that as you can remember. If you can't remember all of it, that's all right. Close your eyes, take what you can remember of it, and repeat it. Just repeat it to yourself right now, very gently, and sink back into God. 